Hi, everybody, and welcome to Kissing the Cod, All Things Gold. Um, happy to have you back here today and happy to welcome Gary Lewis. As we've mentioned before, the uh, gold exploration business is a is a very interesting world. It's it's uh, tough and fiercely independent and uh, populated by highly intelligent and very unique characters. And I think Gary, you qualify for that list. Um, unique Gary, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Gary is joining us today. He's in Newfoundland and welcome Gary. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Ah, pleasure, pleasure. Now, uh, for the benefit of everybody, uh, you are a prospector uh, and involved in a number of different commodities. Um, but yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your and, and where you are right now? Okay, I'm located in in CBS in in Newfoundland. I'm originally from Grand Falls, Windsor, Central Newfoundland, um, and. Uh, but my family is, uh, um, I guess my mother's side of the family, the Philpott side are from Bay Vert and from Coachman's Cove. And uh, that's sort of how I got interested in the mining businesses. Uh, we'd always take summer holidays, uh, you know, and go out around Bay Vert in the summer. And uh, of course that place is steeped in a mining history and it was very active in the, uh, in the late sixties with the copper mines at Rambler and uh, the Ming mine. and and uh, and also the asbestos uh, mine that is in the Advocate Mine, which is on the way between Bayford and and Coachman's Cove. So I got you know that's really I guess as a kid going back and forth, that's where the interest came from for me to be you know in, interested in minerals and exploration. And and, and growing up um, uh, in Newfoundland, um, I've I've had the benefit of living in a, a mining town in Northern Canada that was mostly populated by people from Newfoundland. It, it absolutely fabulous people. Couldn't, couldn't say enough nice things about them. So there you are surrounded by everybody. Yeah, it, it was, I must say it was, uh, you know, a town I grew up in former Grand Falls, now Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, it was also a resource town. It was a paper town. And uh, so we, you know, we, you know, we, we lived resources of the, of the land while, you know, the Oakport part of Newfoundland lived on mostly the resources of fishing and related industries. And, and of course, Bay Verdon area was, was and still is a mining district and probably the mining capital within the Newfoundland part of the island. Obviously, Labrador has got monster mines in iron ore at the world scale, you know, is, uh, the Labrador is not something that should be left out in any conversation. But, um, but in, in Newfoundland itself, you had the Labrador, you had the Bayvert and also Buckins for, you know, the base metal production and historically. So, yeah. and Newfoundland, uh, and, and I always, it's, it's, it's the jurisdiction, province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm going to shorten it down to Newfoundland just for our conversation. Um, it's going through a, a modern day gold rush and getting a lot of attention but you were there long before the gold rush and you have uh, quite an active uh, involvement in all of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happened, I guess I was, I always dabbled in it and uh, I knew, you know, I guess like anyone starting off, you know, a little bit about it. Uh, so when Boise Bay came and went and I wasn't ready for it, I just said, well, that's not going to happen to me twice. So in 96, I did the prospecting course, which, is something that the province and you know, the government put off, which you know, government is excellent in how they promote prospectors and how they develop prospectors, and and they were really ahead of a lot of the other provinces. So I was I was to benefit of that. I was, uh, and also at the time, you know, you're somewhat freshly out of school. So uh, now I'm just an old fart, but uh, then you're using you know techniques and approaches to exploration that people weren't using for the most part the government was very much developing that and their data set and uh, so i was a person that you know looked at things differently than traditional prospecting i looked at the data and the information and the previous work so uh, because of that i uh, you know i focused on different approaches to exploration and in different environments but there got to be some common denominators in 
and what were good indicator minerals for both gold and base metal in island in on the island and uh, and that's sort of how I focused my my exploration and and you know I guess in the beginning uh, mostly miss you know you you know a little bit you think you know you, you you see what you're you know you think you see something of interest but you know you start off more like a crow looking for something shiny you know to to try to run an assay on with the hope of getting a good a good result and I you know I remember where I got my first really good assay it was in a property called Eastern Point and uh, that that rock ran you know 44 grams of gold so I had a a lot of duds in the bag before that but uh, you know that just gets you hooked even more you know so yeah so I, I know that you're you're a technical advisor with a number of companies that are now exploring actively across across the island, but I, I want to go and talk a little bit. But how how do you become a prospector? What 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 is a prospector? Because I, I think there's a for people that aren't that familiar with it, you've got this image of somebody with a a rock hammer and mm. heading out heading out into the field, but it's it's a highly technical world now and yeah. lots of tools but how do you how did you start how do you how do you begin this career well it it i guess it starts off first with you know being in a vast uh, piece of geology and not having a lot of direction until you start training yourself and educating yourself and you know noting your experiences you put a lot of time in to try to filter out what becomes valid information or invalid information. Um, I know Larry Hicks who instructed me in our prospecting course in, in the nineties there, like, I, I won't forget. He said, you know, you gotta be able to see the big picture. And he talked about alteration and, uh, and after, you know, so long punching time at this and, and looking at the geocam and looking at the, the different geological and structural features, topographic features, then you start to see the big picture. So for me, it was, you know, it's a, it's a case of you get the basic training, you keep going online and reading stuff, you read all the reports, you go to almost every presentation that, you know, companies put off and try to listen to see what will stick. And, you know, if you're that type of person, things will stick with you. And uh, then you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So, you know, you arm yourself with basic information on geology and then geochemistry and then you go expose yourself some geophysics and you, and uh, as you look at the map and you start to figure out the big picture, looking at the geology and topographic work with the lake sediment data, which, you know, again, the government published all these things, you know, back in the, in the you know, late nineties, early two thousands to start to CD-ROM, you know, and you'd get it in an in, in, in arc, you'd publish it all on your computer, wait for it to spin up and, and sort of look at it, try to sort through the different data sets and, uh, and with that, then you, you notice your patterns and stuff. So you, it's a game of self, uh, self-education. self Also, the BC and Yukon Chamber of Mineral Resources had a very good online prospecting school that you could go through, you know. And, uh, and you know, it's, I don't know how long ago this, the, the smartphone came out. It might, be, it might be 13 years ago now or 14 times going too quick. But, you know, just to think at one time, I remember in the early 70s, home, we got the Encyclopedia Britannica. We thought we had the world in our in a little niche in the closet, you know, and, and now I'm sitting next to me with two iPhones that have the equivalent of the World Congress, basically, sitting on top of the desk here. So all the information you need. And so, to, you know, at, at that point, then you somewhere along the line, you've got to learn what your strengths and your weaknesses are and what your time availability is. So how do you execute, you know? You start to see things, you formulate ideas, you try to see where the market is going, where the world markets and where commodities are going to go. Because you want to be ahead of the curve, and in this business, uh, it's very cyclical. You know, you get things going up and down, so the different commodities would, you know, be in and out of folk. And it's done that a couple of times. But what's important to know, Newfoundland, of course, is not until uh, um, Hope Brook happened. You know, in the, in the early '80s, and then was in production in mid '80s when I was, you know, really got interested in this. That you know, gold was an unknown sort in Newfoundland. It was not something that you would really look at to develop a viable, you know, deposit of gold. So it was mostly base metals at that time. And also, um, you know, the reed lots and the ND company and Truder subsidiaries like B, BP, BHP or, or Naranda, they controlled most of the mineral assets. 
as well as Bowaters in Cornerbrook. They would have controlled all that gander for mineral resources. And, and um, one of my jobs was a development patrol officer. We patrolled the Gander River. I used to have the luxury of leaving Gander Bay and go right to Appleton in the canoe several times a summer, a few times in a helicopter during the season, and also snowmobile, snowmobiles. So it was something that I had access to, you know, you know, by consequence. And uh, when the government of land helped furnish some of Bowater's debt, they acquired different assets, including mineral rights, in exchange for money for the contribution towards the forestry continuation, you know? So, so a lot of the island was restricted, you know, because of different uh, property holders and different conditions. And so it didn't really open up until 2000s for, for gold exploration. So up to that point, it was, it's all, you know, Base metals and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I think a lot of people don't really understand that the the value of, of the prospector in the whole um, discovery and exploration leading to a mine stage. Um, because really, uh, these public companies come in and we're all involved with them, but but they need your knowledge and your properties, and this is how you generate your living. Is mm -hmm. you go out, find what you think is something good and, and, and pitch it to them. Am I, am I yeah. correct? You're correct. And then, and again, that's something that I guess I excelled in somewhat is, uh, you know, um, I do have the gift of gab and uh, for the good or the bad of it, but uh, you know, so I, I, you know, I had to forward or two to go look into the companies and, and presenting it in the way I knew how, you know, for some people looking at it, it might've been pretty butchered my point of view of what was geology and what was happening. But uh, uh, most case I could strike a chord with somebody in terms of pointing the opportunity and, and, uh, and as it became more knowledgeable, of course, you were, you're way more able to, uh, you know, approach somebody like a, like a BP or somebody and say, look, you know, we have a property, here's the potential of it. And, uh, so I remember at one point, I'm just giving an example that uh, Hud Bay came here and looked at the entire island for base metals. And I tried to get a hold of them so they'd come look at a property we called the Katy property, which is named after my daughter, uh, found now some 22 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I did get a hold of them. I said, you got to come have a look at this. And I convinced them they're going to go from Gander, fly out the next day. And uh, it was snowing and stuff, but the ground was bare. But once they went in and looked at it, they said, I thought you said there was some alteration here. Like, this is the best property we saw in all Newfoundland. So, you know, that property still to this day is uh, not developed um, and not explored properly. Now it's held by exploits now. And uh, and uh, hopefully they'll get an opportunity to explore it. There's going to be uh, hopefully some more research come out on that property and current research to really show the complexity of that property. And um, so, yeah, so, and the thing is, when you really study these maps, I remember the first time I had, you know, you have eureka moments, right? Where the, you're looking at something and something happens and the hair stands up in the back of your neck. And there, that's a property that has happened to me on and it was subsequent to other properties. But, you know, what you'll see down there is the tremendous folding, you know, when you look at uh, the Great Bend and then when you come off of Kauai Lake and everything down there, all the brooks run from the northwest and they run to the southeast and then they abruptly all run back to the northeast. So the entire thing is folded. And that's, I think, what will come out now soon in terms of the government data. And I know originally the prospector, good prospector, unfortunately passed away. Cyril Reed and I were in there originally, you know, doing the work in there. And, uh, uh, you know, we found some rock in there that ran like uh, 40 plus percent zinc combined metals over 50 percent and uh, well, one of the things we did find was a fold nose in on the side of the road that measured about two feet on each limb and uh, with felsic volcanics and and in the middle was a sandwich of, of massive sulfides so you know it's going to be interesting to see you know what becomes of that now and it's here goes 22 years you know wow. so you got to be patient right yeah so, yeah, yeah. The other thing I'll say too is just in all that, Janet, is that, you know, a prospector got to know his, his pluses and his minuses, you know, and, um, and in this business, you know, there are people out there that with a lot more history than me at this, you know, and, and uh, 
I got to tip it off to, you know, like say the Keats's, for instance, and uh, Al Keats and their family and all the Keats family and, and the associated Keats's, right? Uh, you know, those fellows were at this long for everybody else. And they found many mineral deposits that are, again, some of them now have been mined and other ones are still sitting there, you know? So we all hope to make our mark. I, you know, for me personally, I'll come back to this after, but, you know, we found a rare district, district in Labrador that, you know, it's, uh, it's it, you know, it's going to come into its vogue now. And it's, it's really, truly something of immense value. And, uh, you know, like in 2005, uh, I'll just go on to that now, seeing I brought it up, but. Yeah, go for it. In 2005, Ray Saunders and I, who's also passed away, God love him. He, uh, you know, he believed in me. I was doing some work for him and installing in-floor heating in his house, actually. And uh, he took the opportunity and the chance to invest, you know. So we, could, we started a company called Altera. Now, it originally got on the go for a nickel, a possible nickel discovery in Labrador. And, uh, you know, so we acquired and staked a lot of ground. And at the same time, though, I had been uh, prospecting for rare earths and also my wife, Donna. So we had land on the Labrador-Quebec border, uh, Strange Lake. We're the only other people that owned a part of Strange Lake. Uh, unfortunately, part of it got dropped. Same day, got dropped the government into exempt mineral lands. That's happened to me a couple of times. Um, another time up north for diamonds, but, um, you know, so you're trying to promote these things. So, uh, we also had a part of red wine complex and, um, Aubrey Budgel and Brian Penny, the fellows that are co-founders of, you know, the poor Porto project, mm-hmm. um, they're in the area looking for copper and nickel, you know, uh, again, cause of the past data from Boise Bay and stuff, but Brian had a lot of experience at, at, uh, at uranium. And uh, so I was telling Aubrey, to look, you know, uh, Charlie Gower has done a lot of work up in this area for uranium and for other minerals. And, you know, you should be looking for uranium up there. And um, it wasn't a week later that Aubrey called me up and said, OK, we're getting uh, all these readings for uranium. I said, OK, so what are you getting? And he's, he told me the numbers. And I said, he said, what do you think of that? I said, well, I got no scale of reference. I don't really know what that represents, you know, so. But, uh, you know, no, no hesitation by Aubrey, you know, he went out and spent $12,000 on a super synth and, uh, you know, they were doing readings for uranium and, uh, and as we're, you know, we're working away at the uranium up there, we, we came across, uh, you know, an understanding of the geology and what was causing it. And, uh, so then we continued to explore for that. So, um, we, um, you know, we, we looked at it all and started to see a pattern and we were getting, you know, counts like of 57,000 counts on the synth. And uh, so I said, Oh, this is related to the transcurrent fault. I could put it together. So I said to Brian, Aubrey and Brian, I said, go up. I said, from the Charlottetown towards Goose Bay, these are the UTM coordinates. You know, we go up there and you cross that area, get out and see what will happen. And sure enough, that's a 76 kilometer buckshot. Wow. And they went there and bang, there it was. So then we knew basically what we're into. And uh, <clears throat> Aubrey is a you know, resourceful person. He's a successful, successful business person. He's actually been inducted in Newfoundland Labrador Business Person Hall of Fame. And um, so he had access to his own plane so and pilot. So, of course, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, check out a couple more places, but get the plane. Let's go up and put the synth on the floor of the plane. So that's what we did. And we started to fly back and forth across that in a pattern. And we actually mapped it and took readings, you know, along that and over several of the claims. And we proved out that, okay, this is wild. This is a big uranium play. And um, so we followed up with that, you know, on point and going to different locations. Brian's a really good woods person. He can get around. So we acquired a lot of different samples through the whole area. And, um, and we encouraged then, you know, other companies come look at it, like Cameco and Mega Uranium, Uranium One, uh, Cornerstone, and other companies. They all came and looked at it. And um, while we're looking at it, it it uh, it struck my interest that this was a lot like Namibia. So, and we were there with Cameco, and there was a gem sort of in one of the rocks in a road cut. And I was trying to think of the girl's name now, but she threw the rock up and asked me what I thought of it. And that's what you know, sort of struck me because it was Amazonite, you know, but um, 
What is Amazonite? Short S for Amazonite, yeah. Which, according to Anthony Mariano, has nothing to do with the big picture up there. Okay. But uh, I'd love to go up the Amazon River and see what might be up there. But uh, the uh, and that's the way a prospector thinks, you know. So uh, so the you know the thing is we we then took it and we sent it for assay for the rare earths. And when we got that result back that day, when I put in the spreadsheet, and you can't sell all these commodities, you know, but the current trading price, when you punch it in and bring the values across, the rock was worth fifty thousand dollars a cubic meter, if you could actually sell all the different minerals that were in it, and you know ran you know good uranium, which is not a great thing for rare earths, you know. Wow. So that that whole project that that got to be, um, you know, it's got to be something we bended in to. Uh, what Ray and I were doing, and uh, we had formed a company called Altera, and then uh, we had optioned that off a reverse takeover with a company called Search Minerals, and uh, then I convinced Search to to go into the rare earth business, and um, and you know that's history now. Today, they're they probably got about thirty million bucks spent up there. They got two deposits to find a third one coming, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So it must it must feel very rewarding to see something that you take from such an early stage of discovery to seeing that type of investment and, and development. Definitely. And and you know, when you when you bring that right back to a point you made earlier about the value of a prospector, you know, and, and this government does excellent work for prospectors and I've heard that a lot. Overall, very probably most professional people you'll ever deal with, you know, from from every office in the mineral claims recording department, the people that have been there, uh, to Norm Mercer and other people that have been in the information side of it, to the people in geophysics, you know, to all aspects. And there's it's such a resource. And, you know, the only thing I will say to you fail on is uh, is not to be negative and in, in, in that compliment, but not to draw a brick, uh, is, you know, when a prospector falls his report, they, they can put in $100 a day for their time. Well, I don't know one prospector that gets up and says, "Oh, I got seven and a half hours punched," you know, <laughs> and or or he gets X number of cents a kilometer for his vehicle. You know, this is something that a person and they, they may get grants, you know, um, but uh, this is a person that gets up at one hour in the morning and goes at this, and his brain is totally engaged to to his own damnation, perhaps, you know, because it gets to be a consumption. I am married to a prospector. Yeah. He also yeah. has his master's in geology, but he never calls himself a geologist. There you go. Always yeah. calls himself as prospector. And, and what I learned is that you, it's as, as valuable as it is being on the land, learning how to mine data is incredibly yeah. important. And, and the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, from what I've seen, has an incredibly well-managed system. And yes. a lot of a lot of information from the years. So yes. going, I just want to go back to uranium for so we, you you refer to it something as a cent. You mean a centilometer? Yes, yeah, a centilometer. Yeah. Okay, so when you're running, yeah. you would you would run over the centilometer. Okay. Yeah, we we just to go back to that story again. You know, yeah. so we so you can picture this now. So Zabri and I with uh, with the pilot, and uh, I don't want to say anything but get his pilot in trouble and what Heidi should be flying at, or um, there are no. Um, Caribou or anything in the area, but this, so it's pretty well safe that way. But uh, we basically flew treetop, and uh, and uh, you know it's a twin engine plane, and you're doing 145 miles an hour, and you're you know you're you're 200 feet off the ground, and uh, you're you're mapping the geology with the synth, and you'd see numbers between eight and twelve, you know, typically over rock that wasn't highly anomalous, and then you'd see the synth go up to 35, 45. And, you, you know, you grab your coordinates as best you could and get them down. And then, you know, you see the pattern, right? And sure enough, the transcurrent fault, which is, well, it was all about the structure up here. It's a volcanic sequence of rock that all relates to the neighboring granites that Charlie Gower had mapped before. The original report I gave Brian and Aubrey to say, look, read this report and follow up on Gower's work, you know? So, again, there's a resource. Charlie Gower, God love him. I mean, um, you know, I don't know quite sure what he's at today, but hey, he's a, a resource, you know. So we we mapped that then for the uh, for the uranium, and then we followed up on um, the rare earth aspect of it. And there's there's other minerals up there too besides that, but uh, but it's it's an easy one because uh, you know it's it's 
it's such an obvious thing, you know, based on, you know, what the weather patterns have been. If you've got a good arid stretch, you know, that you're not washing out all the uranium, you know, you make sure you're flying at that time and you pick it up. And, uh, and you know, we've seen other things up there, too, that they're extremely impressive for uranium. So, you know, we're not finished with that yet. Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we both share a love of nuclear energy. I, I just. Um, well, you know, I, I watched the, go, right? I watched the video the other evening, the Elon Musk and in it, his most recent one at the 40 minute mark. He, he said, and I'm pro I'm, pro I'm pro nuclear. You know, and this is where we will get to this is is inevitable, yeah. you know, so that will happen. And, and I've heard that uh, the, the government's very supportive of, of developing um, exploration in uranium as well. Um, I, I call it the other yellow metal. Yeah, since, definitely. Since we're, yeah. we're, you know, we're supposed to talk about gold, but I, I yeah, it's, um, it's the future. And I was very happy to see the Canadian government as well um, offer some good t- tax credits for exploration in, in commodities mm-hmm. like uranium and, and uh, critical metals. Yeah. We don't we don't see that in the U.S. It's not a critical metal yet. And no. Good for Canada, right? Good for yeah. Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, I'll, I'll one more point about that, and then I'll get back on track. There is oh, uh, that's okay. I don't mind. I don't mind. You know, the Richard Nixon who created the petrodollar and and made the American dollar what it is uh, uh, in a deal to you know protect the, the Saudis at the time. Uh, so. You know, everything was done in any stretch of one's imagination to paint uranium and related minerals to be something we can't live with, something we should avoid because you, you don't want anyone to have their hands on the tyranny, you know. And then, of course, since then, total misunderstanding of, you know, like uh, whichever one of the reactors you want to focus on, the ones in Japan, people think that there are nuclear explosions, but they weren't, of course, they're their pressure vessel explosions, just like a hot water tank blowing up. And because the technology is not the proper technique, and then the consequence of that is, you know, the reactor is damaged. And, and then, you know, you get this whole follow-up concern, you know? So, yeah. So. Yeah. It's, um, we're going to go back to gold now. Not because yes. I want, I, I love this and I love talking about Labrador as well. And um, it, but before we go to gold, I just have to ask, how long do you think you'd survive in a nine to five office job? Well, I I'm actually do that too. Oh, you know? really? Okay. Yeah, no, I'm I, for a day job. I'm in charge of the water and sewer department for the city of Mount Pearl. And, uh, but, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, there's weekends, there's evenings, there's things and people say like, yeah, you know, like, how can you do justice that? And I said, well, you know, there's 28 hours in a day. And they say, what do you mean it's 28 hours in a day? I said, well, do you sleep eight? Because I don't. I don't sleep four. <laughs> so, you know, you make the time. You and, know? And, and weekends out on the land? Whenever you can, yeah. And, of course, now there's so much stuff for what's, what's after happening. The writing reports and follow-up is a big chunk of time, you know. So, um, and so you got to work with that in the weather and in the Newfoundland is, you know, has his moments there, but it also lends itself to expiration in uh, in the winter time for things that you're way more difficult to get to in the summer, unless you're using a helicopter, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's um, it's it's the thing. So, yeah. you know, the the whole Mount Payton thing and the whole linear thing and the Dog Bay line to get back on track, uh, how I got involved in that. Um, um, you know, originally I told you, you know, you get, you know, you sort of educate yourself. And one of the things I educated myself with was uh, uh, understanding the Point Leamington deposit, which is the largest on mine massive sulfide deposit, I guess, in the eastern Canada. And it's, you know, 16 to 18 million tons, but more besides. And um, when I, I was lucky enough to get some original documents there from Miranda, from a young fellow from Fortune Harbor, a gentleman, a young fellow, Carl, who passed away, you know, he's a geologist. So he had some of the hardcover data from, uh, from Naranda and I got, I was given it and I studied it. And, um, you know, I looked at the stats of it all. And I was good at stats in university. So when I looked at it all, it was obvious to me what, what worked and what didn't. And, and the only thing that worked in there was basal tills. And uh, the only thing you could see seeping out of that environment there was the arsenic. 
so you put it together, you try to figure it out. So you learn that, um, you know, the arsenic, uh, for some reason, you know, that it was high plateau bog. Uh, the base metal also has an arsenic signature, which is common to the gold too. And that's one of the things I really follow up on. And the, uh, but the bogs and the manganese scavenging didn't, didn't control the arsenic. So the arsenic presented itself, you know, as runoff from this high plateau bog that was sitting on top of, you know, a large mass of sulfur deposit, which Alan Keats had found for the record and uh, another one of his discoveries. Um, but um, Popping up everywhere. Oh, yeah, it's unreal what these guys are after doing. So, you know, when I looked at it all, I said, okay, that was great. And then another little pattern I saw was, uh, heard the right and wrong of it, the pine trees survived in there. And uh, and that's because the, the pine trees, based on the geochemical soils, uh, you know, the, the minerals act, as the same as today, an, an antiviral. And so in Newfoundland, pine blister rust will come along and, and other diseases and, and insects and stuff and attack these trees and wipe them out. But at point, the trees that, a lot of the trees that grow to maturity uh, is a lot because of the geochem. So the geochem gives the tree a better chance to survive and get to be, you know, your sort of your pine forest, you know, here in Newfoundland anyway. And I looked at that as a pattern and started to follow up on it. And it worked for me. You'll never convince me otherwise now, but it worked you know, for me. You get into something that um, I think is an important point. Um, there's a lot of environmental groups out there that believe that exploration and mining is destructive. And, and, hmm. and, and, and they're, I don't think people realize that if you're in this business, you know the land, you love the land, you make you're living from the land, mm. and you you care about it. And 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 I I don't think people really understand that that part of mm. it. No, I mean you you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, just just the way it is. And 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 the other thing too for for the people out there that may watch this that are more environmentally. Uh, driven in their approach to things. Uh, you know, if you took all the existing mines in Newfoundland and you were to consolidate them into a dot, and then if you look at the other land masses out there, and now when you see just willy-nilly people creating these wilderness reserves with no consequence, you know, once it's done, like try making that go backwards. And, you know, Quebec has it much better. They have the plan to Nord and, and they will look at the land mass and the resources and work with indigenous people and then try to just determine, okay, you know, where should we put this? And I'll give it to you this way. If you were a farmer and you had all this beautiful tops all over there and all this solid rock granite there, would you say, okay, I'm going to make that a national park where all the topsoils to and, and try to plant my vegetables on the solid rock? No, you wouldn't. Right. So you need to, the government needs to fully understand it. And, and that's saying they don't, but, you know, the, the political interests of some of these, these groups now is far exaggerated in what's the benefit to the public. And I'll be the first one to look at something like any, like a true pine mountain reserve and, and these types of beautiful sceneries that are unique and say, okay, that makes sense. But right now, what I see for the most part is a willy nilly uh, allotment of land to satisfy a group of people just because someone said we're going to get to this, this percentage of land, you know, and protect it. Well, I can tell you right now that Newfoundland, for the most part, has very major road access, very little. And the most of it is a park and Labrador also. And, and what they're turning into parks, you can never get there. Only the most elite people in the world can go there. It's not for you or I. And, and it shouldn't be, I guess, it's for, it's for the environment and the ecology and the creatures of it, you know. So, yeah. Their, their habitants on this earth, they, they have their right to exist and prospectors get that. I mean, we understand the beauty of it all and it's not damn the torpedoes and, and wipe it all out. It's, you know, truly looking at what is a responsibility. And, and for years, the government, I mean, when you for a person that owns a piece of land, you're nevertheless, you know, it's in there, you don't own the mineral rights. And that's because those rights are owned by the people and they're there for the benefit of the people. And it was it was responsibility to government at the time to be aware of those things and to be of knowledge of that and to and to take the, you know, the, the true benefit of people and environment and ecology and, and nature. Yes. But, you know, right now, I, I feel a lot of it is just lost on the ladder. You know, it's not uh, ecology. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, and, 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 and I, and I probably will sound like a broken record because I say this over and over again, but I don't think there's a better industry that can create wealth and jobs and contracts and businesses like yeah. exploration and mining. And I think what you said is really important that those minerals are owned by the people and yeah. you have a, a social responsibility to help people survive. And well, things can be very pretty to look at and necessary to protect you. People have to live too. You have to eat yep. and, and managed properly, which to me, there's no, you know, it's just, you're in the mining industry. You're not managing yep. properly. You're not the person. That's that's part that, of it, right? You're not the person that put that car on your bum to go to work. Yeah. Right. So they all need that. And we all need that. And it's not so much it's they and us, but. I'm going to sound like that, but, you know, uh, hypocrisy sometimes is somewhat, you know, distasteful um, because we, you know, we all have a social responsibility and, and an environmental responsibility. So, well, yeah. and, you know, there's the, the mining industry does amazing things for people. I was, I was in a mining town in 80, 88, um, which dates me a lot. Um, and the, the electrician at the mine, was making $60 an hour in 88. Yeah. And you couldn't yeah. get enough of them, right? There was, there was a, 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 a void of, of trades. And, and he didn't die with any money in his bank either. He spends it all. Mm-hmm. Right? Goal. He drove the economy. You know what I mean? Oh, so, RVs and boats and... Living, family living too, right? Yeah, you camping know? with the family. Camping like it's family, all... Yeah. The dollars Beautiful. go around in a jurisdiction when, when there's jobs in the jurisdiction, right? Yeah, they're good paying jobs. They pay back. Yeah. I'm happy to, I'm happy. I'm very happy to see what's going on uh, where you live because I know uh, some of the people from the North that went back there and, um, you know, they did. It's great to see the jobs there now. Yeah. So Janet, then the other thing now, I guess, to get back to it, I alluded earlier about why I looked at the point limit deposit and the arsenic. And then the same thing was true when I looked at the, the other place around the island. Uh, the Mount Payton itself, uh, while it may not be a linear, and there, to me it looks like more of a slumping feature, but, uh, you know, I noticed a chain of lake seds in there that ran for 14 kilometers, and the uh, first one being 1010 arsenic, one in the middle, 178, and the other one being 1170. Uh, we went along that trend, and Naranda had worked Salmon River before, and um, you know, so we were working away at that. And of course, there was no gold in the lake sets whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we went in there, to, you know, the first day that we sampled it. Uh, again, I, I, I had Cyril Reed go in and sample it. Tom Cyril was an eager person to the prospect and, a, and an unbelievable woodsman and a dog for work. You know, I remember the day when there was 30 degrees. My, my wife was about to have a child and there's no way I can cover all this off, you know, and so. He's in there, he comes out, he says, what do you think? I said, well, that's it, for sure. That's massive arsenic. And it was floaty, it picked up around the side of the lake. So the next day, you know, um, we were in there. And uh, and then we continued along this 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 feature, topograph feature. In the middle, the next pond up, we got lots of samples around that pond that ran up to 44 grams. Quinlan's collected that one. And um, the middle pond at 178, just off to the west of it, with just structural features to it is a small gully. And uh, we sampled right there. And, and uh, I still picture poor old Cyril out in the lake, you know, and, uh, and digging down and pulling up massive arsenic off the bottom of the pond, you know. It looked like baby poop, you know. And, uh, and we assayed that and ran 400 parts gold. And, and then we dug right on the shore. There's some, we could see going along the shore, there were some quartz there. And to this day, that stuff runs, you know, up to 33 grams and has never been a trench put on it. It's never been sampled. The same thing up in the bottom of Shirley Lake. It runs the same thing, samples, you know, up to 44 grams, never been trenched. And then the furthest pond up to 11, uh, 1170, I was in there last year in a helicopter and found some beautiful samples. And that property is now owned by Truscus and, uh, and, and exploits almost to rem- the bulk of it, you know? Because so you have that- a number of properties to different companies, correct? I have, yeah. Yeah, it's been a pretty busy couple of years, you know? It's great. But in, 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 when the first pass happened, though, we at the time Garfield McVeigh was with Rubicon Minerals, and he was in 
in on the point limiting deposit. And, you know, I was working on the Mount Payton and the whole idea of it. And as we went around to Mount Payton, everything in contact with the Mount Payton, I can the Mount Payton is like a sombrero to me. And uh, so you have the, you know, there's an alkaline truth of, there's a mafic and more felsic phase to it. And in the margins, you know, where, where the valley is too, and the valley is totally peripheral around, around the perimeter. And, uh, and as you move away from that contact, where this bigger intrusive would be underneath and fluids would have been shed along the perimeter of it or in these inner sloping features, um, then you get these arsenic signatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, around the perimeter of it, we, we've, to say we found 10 uh, epithermal systems that were never found before, you know, beautiful textbook epithermal systems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, we still got some pretty good ideas, I think, on, on what will happen around the antimony mine itself and so I, I sold that concept to Garfield I mean at the time Altius had drilled uh, drilled a really good hole and sparked some interest and I was after bringing Garfield numerous times to say look there's a really big picture here to be looking at and then so they optioned it off to uh, I think it was Battlefield at the time and uh, so then uh, you know staking rush happened that time with the Botwood Basin concept and uh, I still remember Garfield McVeigh going to Vancouver and uh, and presenting his talk there at the time when all this stuff was happening. And he got about a couple, maybe a minute into it. And he said, I got to stop. He said that, he said, uh, he said, everything we're exploring in Newfoundland goes Altius in your option agreement, you know? And he said, that's not why we're here. We're here because of, at the time, Black prospecting, you know? That's what we were. And uh, he said, they pointed this out to us just for, so he, he was one of the first fellows to give us some recognition for what we did. And again, that's a long while ago. Um, and that really started, that boom then is what started the, the modern day understanding of, of, uh, of uh, the Appleton linear and uh, the further understanding, I guess, because I don't want to take any away from Peter Nimmel and pizzas and, and, you know, the other people, uh, I'm going to try to think of the names in a minute, but uh, the people that were there before, you know, and uh, so they, they were at it and, and nailing away at it. So, uh, but the money and funding became because of that effort. And uh, Rubicon and Paragon, you know, they really had a lot of property. And it's like everything, you know, it's like a balloon that blows up too much. It's, you know, you, you got to have some good sources or else it'll bust, right? And it, and it started and then it pulled back. Um, yep. But I want to go to something that you said earlier. You talked about the reed lots. And I don't think yep. people understand uh, how important that piece of history is yeah. in terms of opening up exploration. Because people keep saying they, they can't believe there's a modern day gold rush. This, if this was so great, it would have happened before. But it, it, can you talk a little bit about the reed lots just to help people understand? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, Newfoundland itself is, was his own, his own little nation, really. It was a, you know, it was a prodigy of England that was over here. It was a stepping stone to get to the new world. I mean, I'm always proud to talk about, you know, how many people in North America were really, you know, stones skipped across the water and, you know, processed through Newfoundland. And, and so, you know, at the time, they, you know, the England really understood the true resources of the province for its mineral rights and its forest and timber rights. And, uh, you know, these these different towns that were settled, and, and I'll just go with, uh, I, I might misquote some of the numbers, but town of Grand Falls was on Reed Lot 59 and uh, Buckins might have been 233 or 235. I'm not sure. Um, but um, th- th- those properties were owned as in their entirety. They were, they were owned by these people from the core of the earth to outer space, every aspect of it, from the mineral, the water, the forestry. They, they were like countries within the country. So they had total sovereign control really over these things and the properties. And to this day, the government is still trying to unwind it. You know, uh, um, when the government took back Grand Falls, they say they made a mistake. No, they didn't. They couldn't. They couldn't do it any other way. It was you can't even untangle it. You talk about string theory, <laughs> entanglement. I mean, it's so it's almost impossible. But the so the government, you know, and, and the land. These people, they had true control over that land and property. And as they saw fit you know, they could develop it for whatever purpose they chose. And therefore, you know, what was known to be of interest, like everything, things which are cycles. So in a state, a water resource was important and, and making a power for yeah. development of these other resources, you know? Yeah. 
So that's why it was important. So these things did not get looked at. So, but the, the read lots were initially assigned because of the railroad that was going across. Correct. Yeah. 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 yeah it was a compensation yeah. for that. And then, uh, you know, so they acquired large tracts of property right across the island. I mean, this, uh, this railway went through in the late 1800s. And, uh, you know, it's, when you think about it, it was a crime that it's gone really, but, um, you know, a lot of feat of engineering. And, and if you look at the scale relatively to the cost of it in that time, you know, the, what it would cost to do it again today. I mean, you know, in, <laughs> I don't know if you could ever do it again today. I don't think, uh, you can ever see another railway built period. So, you know, the exchange was heavy in terms of, uh, land, but Newfoundland had lots of it and they're hoping, of course, that these people would use other monies to help develop other resources that would have been on it. That so was a smart move, but it, it uh, you know, it, was, it, right. it tied of, things up, right? Like it, it tied it, it up. And, and the mineral rights were with the reed lots. So yep, yep. Once, once that was unwound, for lack of better words, that's yep. when you really started to open up those, those lots of land for mineral yep. exploration. Right. Okay. So it's that that and that, that and the combina combination of knowledge, mm -hmm. you know. So you know, as the knowledge era came to be, you know, you get. I, I like the word paradigm shift, right? Because I mean, you see these things and shifts in general, right? So things shifted again, you know. So it came open. The knowledge and data was available. The world, we're, we're looking for different things. So then you can go raise money and go explore, and that's what's important. I mean. If you don't have someone like an Eric Sprott there last week making the statement that he made oh, that he thinks that this could be you know, the biggest gold discovery in the world, you know, and so that wakes up people that 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 enables other companies to be able to go to the market and say, if it's good enough for Eric, it's good enough for me, you know. So, you know, so then the, the money comes in and then you can go out and you can go put that to work and find things. Right. So. Yeah, yeah it, it, you know, the jurisdiction is just so rich in resources, like you say, from water to, to timber to, to mineral resources. Um, yep. uh, Eric Sprott's uh, story in, uh, I think it was in the Financial Post, um, yeah. getting a lot, of, a lot of attention, I think, coming on the jurisdiction. Um, yep. You made reference to Newfound and the discovery there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so when this when this whole process went through and the market goes up and down, uh, and even originally when we did the deal with Rubicon back then, gold was, uh, we had some producing mines in Newfoundland, Hammerdown, and Bullion, and they would produce gold at less than $250 an ounce and made money, you know? So it was very efficient, small-scale mining, but nonetheless, they did it. So when we did the deal with Rubicon, the concept was, well, there's no money in it, we can't give you a net smelter, really. That was sort of the angle that not Garfield, but other people in the company were taking. Of course, they were trying to develop Red Lake. Uh, but, you know, we negotiated a, a sliding net, net smelter scale. I think it's probably one of the first ones ever negotiated. Mm -hmm. And it was based on, okay, fine. So goal's 250. You can't afford to pay us a net smelter. But if it goes over 300, it's this. If it goes over 350, it's that. So so that, that, in, that investment by Rubicon then, you know, put a lot more knowledge and understanding and for people to go research, you know, and, and to try to understand better what was out there. So it went through the cycle, the market collapsed in 08. And, uh, you know, they, they had good results, but, you know, not the spectacular results to drive it, nor anyone. Well, I can't say that Garfield never had the understanding of it all because he did um, for, for him to talk about and stuff like his understanding was there from day one. And he truly understood that, you're going to need a shitload of money to drill this properly in order to chase this thing down the rabbit hole. And uh, so the whole market went backwards. And uh, in 2016, my role in this gets to sound like this. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who reached out to these guys and made a phone call to him, uh, Bill Kennedy. You know, Bill wasn't fully in the understanding of all the other sides of the business, but he he's brass enough that he made the call, right? So when he had uh, the tiger by the tail, it got handed over to me. And uh, so then it was my job to market it, you know, and the idea concept guy. And uh, so that's what I did. And when they came here, I picked uh, Danny and Colin up in the airport in 2016. They were with Newfound. Yeah. So, I mean, they weren't Newfound then. They were just a concept, right? So they were just some guys that were going to start some company that, you know, were going to go out there and, and consolidate. They heard about 
the goal editor and stuff from previous reports from uh, uh, the gentleman's name coming in a minute, but uh, uh, so they, they were interested in it. And we had lots of other good results in H-Bond and, you know, a bowler north of that, that was, I don't know, number now was over 800 grams, 900 grams. So, you know, the big picture was there. So I explained to them the opportunity and they, they came, we showed them, you know, a whole litany of, pro- of properties that were historic in nature and known, uh, but yet to get to see boots on the ground and, you know, the, the research data to go with it, to hand it to them, explain where they were in space. And here are some of the, you know, the results. And then to paint the big picture, you know, and, and, and that's what I did at the time. I, I told these guys, look, you know, it's here and, you know, here's, here it is. And, and um, so they wanted to meet the Keatses, of course. So I arranged for that meeting and, and they went and met with Alan and Kevin. They took them in and showed them their discovery showing guess somewhere. Around. I think it might've been the lotto, you know, and they came back truly impressed by the amount of gold they had seen and, you know, never quite saw anything like that, you know, and truly had a imaginative view of what could be, you know, and for myself, I spun, of course, the big picture to say, look, you know, the dog bay line is over here, you know, the Dover fault is over here, you know, um, you know, the, the other the occurrences that were there, Duda Lake and the like, and the line to strike and right on up to Valentine Lake. And, and I said, you know, this thing in Gander Lake itself is a big sigmoidal structure. It's stacked above itself to the north. We really sized up. You'll see it. And some of the main trends now, by the way, that they're looking at over these hinge zones and stuff. That, to my mind, I may be wrong, but uh, that's just one limb of that sigmoidal on Gander Lake. And it's stacked above and it's stacked below. So when you get down through that and, and just try to picture this geology, come together like the accordion and then bring it up against the Mount Payton and the deformation, you know, that was involved mm-hmm. and some of the things that are happening along it. Because I had done this already with a company called BVC when when Rubicon had come in originally and and you know we did all the stuff and staked around. Of course, then they, I introduced them to other people. Well, I mean they had known them anyway. I didn't I didn't invent those people. They they deserved their kick at the can from where I was concerned. So and then of course you met a lot more opportunity. And I was sort of sat back for obvious reasons, you know, to try to fend for myself. And I brought in a company called VVC and we staked all that property now that that Newfound has, I had that stake with VVC in that same concept and big picture. And at the time we went at it and we were actually drilling Appleton and we drilled through some pretty wild, we drilled pure MM, MMI targets and hitting all of them. So it told me two things, either MMI worked or you couldn't miss. Hmm. And it's probably more the latter. You know? <laughs> so, so you have a role, you have a, a place in the history of, what is looking like one of the greatest discoveries in, in Canadian history. Yeah. And that's a little bit of a here in the back of the neck moment, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. and I, I saw Danny and Colin in the summer there the, when you had the fundraising dinner there in, in Gander, you know, uh, I was there with, uh, uh, with a gentleman that uh, is associate of Eric Sprott. And, uh, you know, while I was there, of course, Danny saw me first and came over and, and really, you know, said, wow, Gary, could you ever imagine that this is where this would go, you know? And then, and then uh, Colin also came over after that and, and you know, said, think, you know, we're down to the jag and with his concept and idea talking about all this and, and then out in the field and look at where we're to now. I mean, they raised, in that little dinner meeting, I think they raised 56 or $58 million for the sake of uh, 5 million chairs, you know? And, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the bus is still going yet, you know? So, uh, so it, it's amazing, it's, you know, that the, the role you, you'd had to play in, uh, in some of these things. And, uh, well, and launching, and launching like how, how many companies are there now around well, across, and across you, the Newfoundland and, and, and extending into Labrador? It's uh, what yeah. the, the spinoffs and, and the benefits. Yeah are incredible yeah. and, and i think the new discoveries that we're going to see from all of this in place that uh haven't had it before so yeah. so that last question for you yeah if you, if you weren't a prospector what would you what would you do <laughs> well i mean if you could go back and change a lot of things i guess i'd go right back further and uh, probably really would have pushed something in engineering you know 
Mm-hmm. And I'm the type of fellow I got a lot of inventions in my head, you know, and I probably would have probably tried to pursue them and, and develop them more so than what I did. And uh, so, but you get to live vicariously through your kids, you know, mm-hmm. so they'll, I'm sure, follow in some of the things that I'll do. And uh, and there's a lot of other people that are, can do it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would have did something else in, in uh, engineering, I think, if we're going to went back to it all again. Uh, it's almost outside of geology. I, I would always do this more of a as a um, a partial thing than 100. Um, percent You know, there's um, there's some people I met through all this, and and uh, they put some wisdom on you. You know, yeah. so uh, it's well, a very and, consuming and, business. And, and there's lean years, right? And oh yeah, there's definitely lean years, and and for me, I can subsidize my income with other things. Well, you know, other families here, you know, like you know, you take about the Keatses, and and you got people like the Quinlans too, like unbelievable prospectors, right? That uh, they can they can their world scale, you know, in terms of their abilities, right? And there's other people out there too that are at this that are been hammering away. Tim Froud comes to mind. Peter Demo, like it, but there's and, and but inside the government too, there's Tim's so many guy. so many contributing people inside the government that were just doing it. The same thing they were they were setting seeds, you know. Yeah. So there was so much of that, and uh, you know, for me, it's it's all a great bit of fun. Uh, so so you're you know you think okay, you know Labrador, we're gonna do something real on a on a scale of Hibernia. Yeah, and that's that's what I told Ray at the time. Get off topic again for a second. That's but okay. That's okay. I said I said to Ray, and you know, when, when Aubrey, I said, look, we are with rare earth metals, where, and uranium too, but rare earth metals, where oil was in 1900, but it's not going to take us a hundred years to get to where oil is today. I said we'll do this quick. It's coming, and uh, and I said it might take, you know, ten or fifteen years. So. You know, that was 2008, 2010. So here we are now some 10 years later. An and overnight, what, 10 years to an overnight success. <laughs> nothing to it. And relatively speaking, Just it's not like even that. that. It's, it's like not even a blink. Because, but the things are changing so quick. Yeah. Like in, in 1900, there was a paradigm shift. People went from wind and coal-fired and steam generation to the engine to the combustion engine. And then oil took that part. And so then oil became a petrochemical company. It became plastics. It became all these other things. We're not even seeing that with the rare earth metals yet. We're not even seeing what those unique uh, properties will do for those metals, you know, in terms of what they can do. With things even like medicine, we're not even there yet. So I've always sat outside the box and tried to think ahead of the curve. And, you know, I got a few arrows in my quiver yet, mm-hmm. you know, that... Uh, that will execute, you know? I believe you. Well, well Gary, it's, um, it's been a pleasure. I, well, thank uh, you. This conversation didn't go where expected, as usual. I said <laughs> that last time. And, yeah. um, I, but I, re- I really enjoyed it. And um, I think you've given everybody a lot of good background information on where we find ourselves today and mm. also what the opportunities are, are really like. And there's still so much untapped in, oh, in, well, uh, I mean, in the jurisdiction. It's always about, I'll just go to a different little bit of philosophical or whatever, but it's, it's about knowledge, you know, and, and, and where we're going with AI and understanding AI. And in that case, the government really needs to get ahead of the curve and, and really compile and put all their data in a, in a format that can communicate with itself. And, and so when it's being compiled, it'll become truly part of a whole. And uh, so then as they bring that into AI and government should be doing it and government should be mentoring, not letting a Charlie Gower. Yeah, you can put it in a report, but my God, for the kids in the university, that could have been studying with them. You know, someone should fund it, you know, and, and, and just for the benefit, Charlie worked for the government. Charlie worked for the government and he, he did a lot of work in Labrador. And, you know, that's another place that we're, you know, I'm very interested in and just, you know, in, in central Newfoundland, you know, like Dave Evans, for instance, the role that Dave Evans has played, he's no longer with the government either. And, uh, you know, so he's gone on and Dave helped us immensely. And uh, when you look at someone now like Hamish, you know, uh, we had a little meeting the other day with Hamish. What a talent. Very, very, I'm just very sitting good. back watching him saying, man, 
when that fellow really puts this all together, like he's helping a lot of people, I'm sure. But when he really puts this all together now, it's going to be pretty interesting. And he also knows rare earths. Big time. Well, thank you so much for today, Gary. And um, I really enjoyed myself. And I also want to thank everybody for for tuning in and and learning more and meeting Gary. And um, please join us again at Kissing the Cod. Oh, wait. Gary, (laughs) my cod. (laughs) I'm going to pack them with me. uh, We'll go fishing uh, this summer. Yeah, like you say, there's a there's a beautiful little pub in Pelly's Island. I can show you the most gorgeous mass of sulfide there that we trenched a couple of years ago. Uh, combined metals over 53%. Uh, but the brewery is beautiful and uh, the tomahawk steak is enough for two. So, yep. Nice. Well, and then you go fishing. Said, I'm married to a prospector and a weekend yep. in the mountains or is not at a ski resort. It's probably going over the mountain on a four by four. Yeah. Well, get Bill, get Bill out here too. And let's get it on, as we say. I will. I will. Thank you everybody for joining us uh, again. I hope you come back and meet some more really interesting people. Um, you can follow us on social media at uh, kissing the cod. We're on Twitter and Instagram and also on Facebook, but uh, thank you again, Gary. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Janet, very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.